After six weeks, the Alec Murdoch jury came back in just a matter of hours with guilties all the way around. And he was sentenced at 9.30 the next morning. And now, as I sat down to record this, and we record it behind the scenes with so many of you, well, his brother Randy has spoken out. And that's part of what we're talking today as we round up this verdict, what it means, the jurors speaking out, what this trial might say about the future of televised trials, and the fact that the quote that the New York Times is leading with from Randy Murdoch, his older brother, the one who still works for the Parker Law Group, who was a law partner at PMPED, says, quote, he knows more than what he's saying. He's not telling the truth, in my opinion, about everything there. I can't wait to see the context of that quote and talk with you more about it because this trial has very much taken over the last six weeks of my life and so many of yours. We are going to have to talk about all of it. And with that, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to The Emily Show. I'm Emily D. Baker, the internet's go-to legal analyst and big fan of the cursey words. I've been a licensed attorney for over 17 years. I'm a former prosecutor, and I break down the legal side of pop culture and entertainment stories we can't stop talking about. We should just get into it. Let's go. So this is a public service announcement. Manscaped now has beard products. The leaders in below-the-belt grooming are now taking care of your face or your partner's face with their revolutionary beard hedge trimmer. Yes, you can just combine it with the lawnmower and the weed whacker and you have all of the cheeky lawn care that's not actually meant for your lawn. The beard hedger is tough on hair, but smooth on your skin and comes with a click wheel that changes lengths. So you're not constantly swapping out those little guards that go on top and get all lost in the drawer that are a disaster and I can never read the numbers on anyway. Yes, 20 hair cutting levels, one tool. And if you get the Pro Kit, it comes with shampoo and conditioner, a beard oil and a grooming pomade. And then you get three free gifts, the beard brush, comb and scissors. So your beard can look glorious whether or not you are a member of SLED. So if you are ready, to get the beard in your life altogether, you get 20% off and support the show when you go to manscaped.com and use code LAWNERD. That's 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com with code LAWNERD. Trust Manscaped's Beard Hedger Pro Kit and Performance Package 4.0, the right tools for the job. Let's get back to today's episode. First, This trial was streamed gavel to gavel, and I streamed it gavel to gavel on YouTube. So aside from the parts where my brain involuntarily checked out because ADHD is real, I saw every moment of this trial with so many of you, often 50,000 plus of you, live concurrent viewers, chatting about this trial. It was a long six weeks of trial. Look, Depp V. Heard was also six weeks of trial. But there was a break in the middle, so it ended up being about seven weeks, and then they didn't really have Fridays. So when we parse trial days to trial days, I think this trial was actually longer. But this is, it feels longer. It feels long. It just feels longer to me. We 
started out this case not knowing how much of the other evidence, the 404 evidence of prior bad acts would come in, not knowing how long the state's case would actually go. And the judge let in so much of it. Why? Well, at the beginning, the judge let in the financial crimes because they were contextually connected to the day of the murders. Alec Murdoch was confronted at work by Jeannie Seconder on June 7th, over $790 plus of missing funds, and then went home like everything was fine, like everything was normal. At sentencing, Judge Newman said he doesn't believe that. It's one of the things I disagree with Judge Newman on here, and I found Judge Newman to be a delightful jurist to watch. Did I agree with all of his rulings? No. Will I ever agree with all of anyone's rulings? No. Will we always agree about everything on everywhere, every time, all the time? No. No. There's times I'm like, eh, I think I would have done this, or eh, I don't really see that there. But Judge Newman said, I don't, he didn't believe that Alec Murdoch was just living this like a normal day. So that's fine. Here's what I think about that. Because when the judge was doing sentencing and he was like, I don't believe that this was just a normal day. I actually kind of do. I think that that's how calculated Alec Murdoch was, that he was confronted about 700 plus thousand, almost 800,000 missing dollars at work. And he went home, went out and hung out with Paul, had dinner that was cooked by Blanca, and then went up to the kennels with the family and let on to them no indication that anything was wrong at all. And I think that he was so practiced at acting like everything was fine, not just through stealing from clients from decades and lying, but also through addiction, that he was so practiced at pretending everything was okay that he was just used to acting like everything was okay, and he treated it like it was a normal day. I don't think that part was a lie. I think he was so good at separating the two that his family did not know the inner turmoil that was going on with Alec Murdoch. And it seems from this trial that no one did. And he was comfortable lying about such big things. I also wonder how much he thought he would be able to just roll over Jeannie Seconder. He did not count on the tenacity, the integrity, and the temerity of the CFO of the former law firm PMPED. Once Jeannie Seconder saw what was going on with Alec Murdoch, there was no way she was going to let it go because he put the integrity and the reputation of the law firm where she worked at risk, really, in, in, in the way of Alec Murdoch's scheme. And she wasn't going to let the law firm be torn apart by him, even though it ultimately was. When Jeannie Seconder testified, what she said was she wasn't going to be a part of Alec trying to hide assets. And that's what they thought he was doing hiding money from the family of Mallory Beach, who had sued him and Maggie and Buster civilly over the boat crash, 
wherein there is still argument ongoing about whether or not Paul was driving. I know many of you believe that he was, but that was never proven definitively in a court of law. And there are these, the civil suits still ongoing because it is believed that Paul was driving. So hiding money and assets from a civil or potential civil recovery is completely inappropriate. Jeannie Secondary said, we're not having anything to do with that. We're not having anything to do with hiding assets from the family of Mallory Beach. I don't think Jeannie Seconder knew at the time when she started pulling that thread how far that would unravel. Remember, Jeannie Seconder went to high school with Alec Murdoch. Her brother-in-law, who I believe is her, and she said it backwards on the stand and it took us a minute to parse it out, but I believe it is her husband's sister's husband. So her brother-in-law through her, her marriage. But her brother-in-law is Russell Lafitte, who was the former CEO of Palmetto State Bank, who was indicted and tried federally and convicted for the money side of the nonsense that Alec Murdoch was getting up to. So she pulled that thread to the point that her brother-in-law ended up being convicted of federal wire fraud offenses. That's how far that thread unraveled for Jeannie Seconder. And she got up on the stand and talked about how much she thought that at the beginning of this, he was just hiding assets and they weren't going to be a part of it. And she never imagined that he was stealing money. So in that context of that day of Alec being confronted with the fact that this is never going to go away, that Jeannie Seconder isn't letting it go because he'd been putting her off. Alec, when he testified, said that he thought Chris Wilson would never open up his client trust accounts so that it wouldn't be discovered at that time that Chris Wilson didn't really have the money. Remember, it wasn't until after the murders that Alec went and got the money to repay Chris Wilson to put the money back into his client trust account. So that is part of why the financial crimes came in because they were so intertwined as to the day of the murders and the context of what was going on in the day of the murders. And while the judge said he didn't believe that Alec Murdoch could just go home and, and act like everything was normal, I wonder how much Alec's ability to just act like everything's normal in the face of things that would make the rest of us absolutely lose it played into the mind of the jury when they were looking at his interviews after the murders. How much did it play into their mind? And yes, getting confronted at work about, you know, over, over three quarters of a million dollars missing is different than finding your wife and son dead. Very much so. But the fact that he was able to act like everything was fine when clearly it wasn't might factor into how the jury saw his interviews with police and how easily he was able to talk to police after these events. The ability he had to try to push his way through and talk his way through, because now that the jurors have spoken, we know how much they found that when Alec testified, he was not credible to them. And the testimony about the money theft and the video from the kennels forced Alec's hand. And we learned that after 
the conviction from his defense attorneys. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But first, we need to say thank you to our next sponsor. Green Chef has an incredible deal for you today. So as we are getting into spring and things are busy, Emily, you say they're busy every week. I know I'm waiting for a slow season and I haven't found it yet. And Green Chef is a CCOF certified meal kit company. They bring incredible fresh ingredients to your door with recipes that I would never create myself because I'm just not that creative, but they're so easy to follow. And they've expanded their menu with over 30 different menu items a week to pick from. And you can choose from any type of eating plan from vegetarian and vegan to paleo and keto or protein packed, which is a new menu offering that combines delicious proteins to give you a higher protein meal. So be sure to get your 60% off and free shipping while supporting the show. Go to greenchef.com slash emilybaker60 and use code emilybaker60. That's right, 60% off and free shipping. That's greenchef.com slash emilybaker60 with code emilybaker60. Find out for yourself why Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well. Now, let's get back to today's episode. So I said it at the top of the show, and I want to kind of circle back. After six weeks of trial, Alec Murdoch was convicted of all four, I was going to say three, all four indictments against him. The two counts of murder in the first degree and two counts of using a firearm in the commission of those murders. What was so surprising to me is that the jury was out for such a short period of time. I don't think anyone was expecting it. I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't ready to start streaming again. And we heard that there were there were rumblings at the courthouse. And then I saw that the media had gotten like a three-minute warning to be back at court and that media was going back into the courtroom. And then after I populated the stream, because at first I was like, oh, could be something, could be nothing, could be they want dinner, could be they want to go home for the night. And then we saw that it was a verdict. And I was like, what? They weren't even out three full hours. And since they've started interviewing, they said that they started polling and it really took them just about an hour to come up with a verdict and talk it through. And they wanted to talk things through. So they came back with this verdict very, very quickly. They reviewed very little evidence. They had asked for a monitor to be brought in. I wonder what they rewatched. I haven't seen that reported but I'm sure in the days to come, we will. Lots of the jurors have spoken since this trial ended. They were done, clearly. The case got sent to them on Thursday after the rest of closing. Closing took kind of the overnight. So on Wednesday, we had the prosecution with Prosecutor Creighton Waters closing. And then we had the overnight break. The next day started with the defense closing, not with Dick Harputlian, who had done opening, but with Jim Griffin, I wonder if that was a great choice. Jim Griffin is very close to this case. He was there in the days after these murders. He knew Maggie and Paul. He was representing Paul in the boat case. He's so intertwined with this case. When he was doing the direct examination of Alec Murdoch on the stand, he looked like he was uncomfortable. He looked like he was a bit in pain. And he seemed that way during his closing. And he made some good points during his closing, but it was not clear and easy to follow. Then the prosecution had Jim Metters, who was brought in to do this case. 
um, because he had tried murder cases before with Dick Harputlian. Metters came in and did the prosecution's rebuttal, which I thought was interesting because the defense had asked the court if they could split their opening, saying, look, we won't take any longer, but can we split our opening so both attorneys or split our closing so both attorneys can close, both Jim Griffin and Dick Harputlian? And the court's like, I'm not inclined to let you split it. But then the people went and split theirs. And I thought that that was odd. After Judge Newman had said that he wasn't going to let the defense split theirs. I just wonder if uh, Phil Barber, who did a lot of the testimony with the experts and technology, would have been the natural choice for the closing. But you know, maybe it had, maybe it just had to be Jim. I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Did it, was that the only option? Did, did Jim want to do it? Did Alec want Jim to do it? I don't know. Did Alec want to do the closing himself? Probably. Lawyers love closing. I don't think his testimony helped him though. And we're going to talk about that. So the juror, the jurors went out later in the day and then came back with that verdict in the evening, I was very surprised. So the verdict comes in. It doesn't take that that long to read. There's no response from Alec. And then the court acknowledges the prosecution and the defense and the victim's rights to make impact statements and says, I want to give you time to be ready for closing or for sentencing. And the Creighton Water stands there and goes, We'll be ready at 9.30 tomorrow morning. And I was like, what? I mean, it makes sense, but what? And at this point, I'm like, they must have already talked to the family members and had a plan in advance. They didn't even have time. From the time that they closed to the time the verdict came back, there wasn't really time for them to meet with Maggie's family or have a conversation with anyone. They were probably still boxing up exhibits out of the courtroom and getting something to eat. And deliberating, like they they were taking personal time for the first time since this trial ended. But it is what it is. So I was surprised that from later in the evening they're like, "No, we'll be ready at nine thirty tomorrow morning." At some point, they must have had a conversation, or their victim services representatives must have had a conversation, knowing what would come next. And the defense said, "We'll be ready at nine thirty two. I was stunned. I knew what the sentence would be, or at least I strongly suspected what the sentence would be. This was a death penalty eligible case where the defendant faced 30 years to life on each sentence or on each murder and then additional sentencing for the guns if he was not sentenced to the life sentences. It wasn't a surprise to anyone that this judge was going to sentence him to consecutive back-to-back life sentences after the state chose not to pursue the death penalty. So there weren't really sentencing memos that need to be done. There weren't reports that needed to be made. The sentencing was kind of a foregone conclusion that if you are sentenced of a first-degree murder, that is a capital offense where you can be sentenced to the death penalty and you're not, the sentence is really set. It's going to be life without the possibility of parole. So All that was really left is what did the attorneys need to say and who was going to speak for the prosecution and the defense? And you know what? Nobody did. And I was stunned. 
Nobody spoke for the prosecution. Nobody spoke for the defense except for Alec Murdoch very briefly to say, I'm innocent, your honor. I would never hurt Maggie. I would never hurt Paul Paul, which is the nickname that he started calling him um, during his testimony. And he hadn't been referred to in that way in the trial before. Whether Alec referred to his son in that way privately prior to this is not something that's within my realm of knowledge. But in all of the police interviews, he never used that nickname. So it was very interesting to see it. So we get to sentencing. Judge Newman has quite a lot to say. I found it very interesting that Judge Newman talked about the Murdoch family dynasty having to take great-granddaddy's, he didn't use those words, but having to take his great-grandfather's portrait off the wall in the courtroom. The fact that the family had controlled, those were Judge Newman's words, had controlled justice in that county for almost 100 years. And basically, here you stand before me, you know, sentenced on a, or convicted of crimes where so many have gotten the death penalty for less um, in this case. And after seeing the interviews with this jury, I think they might have if they had been given that option. This jury might have. But what we saw in the defense press conference after the conviction is that if the state had chosen to seek the death penalty, that they would have gotten to individually voir dire the jurors. A lot of you weren't with us during voir dire. I covered a very little bit of it um, because the process can be kind of slow. And I watched it, but I didn't stream a lot of it. So with voir dire in this case, they sent out questionnaires and then they the judge asked them questions, very basic overview questions, and that was it. They were not individually questioned the way they do in so many other jurisdictions. But if it's a death penalty case, then you get, or the lawyers get, to have a much more in-depth conversation with the jurors. And so the defense posited that that might be a reason why the prosecution did not seek the death penalty in this case, and that the case being heavily circumstantial was not the type of case you would often seek the death penalty for, which I agree with. Um, and Dick Harpootlian had worked as a head prosecutor for, what, 15 plus years? So when he's talking about cases, Dick Harpootlian has both prosecuted and defended death penalty cases. And so when he's talking about the process that one would go through, I was like, well, yeah, that's what that is. So after sentencing, after the press conferences, the defense is asked whether or not they thought Alec testifying was a mistake. DeCarpoolian very clearly said no, next. But later on, when asked about it, DeCarpoolian was talking about the evidence the state brought against Alec Murdoch showing that he was stealing from, and I'm not going to quote Harpootlian's exact words, but showing that he was stealing from catastrophically injured clients in the you know personal injury realm of law, that he was stealing money, that he was a liar, and all the rest of it, and talked about how Alec was basically forced to testify. And what he said was, could he pull it off? Alec testified, could he pull it off? It off and then responded, apparently not. 
So I wonder how much the strategy of this legal team was. Alec is a smooth talker. I think Creighton Water says he's he's a fast talker, meaning, meaning not literally he speaks rapidly, but that he's slick and that he would be able to smooth talk this jury. And Dick's quip at the end was, apparently not. Well, apparently not is accurate. Now we know what the jurors have had to say about this case because the jurors have spoken um, to a variety of outlets and all the jurors that I have seen speak thus far as of recording this on March 6th, because stuff will always happen. I feel like if I don't date the podcast, it's like, why didn't you talk about this? It's like, ah, it happened after I recorded it. So after recording, more might speak, but I've seen numerous jurors speak at this point. I'll be covering it more um, over on my YouTube channel and going through some of those videos. The kennel video and Alec Murdoch lying about not being at the kennel seemed to be one of the most resonant factors for this jury, and they did not believe him when he testified. One juror even went so far as to say that him testifying was a mistake. One juror said that he wasn't crying on the stand. He was just blowing snot. There was a lot of snot. There was a lot of face water. But the jurors did not believe the emotion they saw on the stand. Another said that he was turning it off and on. We've heard that about other defendants on the stand in these high-profile cases, haven't we? Jurors are not going to be persuaded by unnatural emotion. When John Marvin testified, Alex's brother, when Paul Murdoch's friends testified, when Maggie's sister testified, when Alex's friends testified, Ronnie Crosby and Chris Wilson, you could feel their heartbreak. You could feel how torn they were. You could hear the cracks in their voice, the fact that they were trying to talk and all of a sudden it caught them off guard and their throat closed up and they were literally pulling, trying to pull tears back versus Alec Murdoch trying to blow tears out, blow snot forward and breathe out the emotions. Every single real emotion, the comments I saw when I was live was, I'm not crying, you are. This is going to break me. Somebody grab the tissues. Everyone watching the trial along with me was having the same reaction to the real emotion displayed by so many of the witnesses on the stand. And of course they did. You could see it. You could feel it. You could feel that Miss Shelley didn't want to be there because she cared so much for Alec Murdoch's parents as their caregiver, but she was still really weirded out by the fact that he said, if anyone asks you, I was here for 30 to 40 minutes. You could feel for Blanca when she talked about how fond she was of Maggie and how heartbroken she was to find out about the murder and how odd it was to her that down the road, Alec was trying to ask her about the shirt he'd been wearing that day. And it was different than what she remembered. And he was trying to persuade her to remember it the way he was asking her to. You felt their testimony. You did not feel anything 
from Alex Murdoch's testimony. So while there are those that are going to be critical of this jury verdict, the jurors believed what they heard from him or didn't hear from him on the stand. They believed their own eyes. They believed what they heard, and they believed that he was not telling them the truth. And as a jury, they are the finders of fact. That is their right. It's so interesting because this case has drawn so much attention. My attention was drawn to it after the roadside incident, and I started seeing reports of, you know, this lawyer who's been accused of stealing at that time from Gloria Satterfield's family has been shot in the head at the side of the road and somebody drove off and he had gone to the hospital, but then he was going to rehab. And the stories were breaking in such a strange way because it was just like bits and pieces of information because at the time what was coming out wasn't the truth, not any shade to those reporting it. Alec Murdoch hadn't told the truth. That's not on them. But I was like, wait a second. Theft from clients, roadside incident. This is all strange. Long before he was charged with these murders. Once he was charged with the murders, I was like, what is happening in this case? But there was so much more here in this story. And that is something that the jury knows some about, but not all about, but the people have been really critical about that so much came into this trial. But it would have been interesting to see the reporting on this case versus what we saw in the courtroom. And we're starting to see that now in people questioning whether this jury came back too fast. Look, if he hadn't testified, I don't think the jury comes back this fast. And yes, he is going to appeal it. When we talk about what happens next, we're going to talk about Alec Murdoch's appeal, of course. But he's also still going to be prosecuted for the 99 other crimes he's got going on. No, we'd have to subtract four. There were four here. 90 plus other crimes that he's still facing. It's odd to see um, the different perceptions of anything that you all watch in real time, right? But I think, at least for those I've talked to, almost everyone agreed on the way Alec came across on the stand. And if that's what the jury's basing most of their verdict off of, that he lied about being at the kennels, that they did not believe him on the stand, and that he could not explain the things that he needed to explain, I think he closed the door on doubt with his own testimony. Not anything the state did. Not anything the defense did or didn't do. But Alec Murdoch closed the door on doubt for this jury. And that's why they came back so fast. We need to talk about the fallout from this case, what happens next, and his brother's statement to the New York Times. But first, we need to thank our sponsor. I can't believe it's already March and it feels like it's time to start doing spring cleaning and open up the windows but while I do a cleaning in my home, I also do digital cleaning twice a year. And one of the things I always check is to make sure that my VPN is turned on on all my devices. Sometimes it gets turned off, kids. 
<laughs> and I want to make sure that I am protected. NordVPN does so much more than just protect your data as it's going through the internet. Yes, it encrypts your data. Yes, they have high-speed servers. Yes, they have a 30-day money-back guarantee. Yes, they don't keep logs of what you're doing online, but they're also protecting you from cyber attacks. Nord offers the dark web monitor to get alerts about your credentials that appear on underground hacker websites. Use the free Nord password manager to generate and automatically fill in strong passwords. As I said, more than just a VPN to keep you safe online. And Nord is celebrating their 11th birthday. So for a limited time only, you will also receive an additional mystery gift on top of your discount. So use my link to get your exclusive NordVPN deal. That's nordvpn.com slash Emily D. Baker. Use the link below to get your deal and your free gift. Thank you so much, Nord, for sponsoring this episode. All right, don't forget to hit the link. Let's get back to today's episode. So what happens next? Well, we're not done with Judge Newman if any more of these charges go to trial because Judge Newman is overseeing the rest of Alec Murdoch's cases in the various counties where they are. So if anything else goes to trial, we will be covering it. If those cases resolve, I will also be covering it. There are still a ton of financial crimes and a few others, including tax crimes, that aren't done yet. And we don't even know if the feds are getting involved. That's still possible. The IRS could still get involved. Look, the state tax agency says there's over 6 million. It might be 8 million. My memory is fuzzy. It's been a long six weeks of stolen funds that he didn't pay state taxes on. So I'm sure the feds are just like, hey, you got our money too? Whether they're going to get any of that money is a separate question. But we have a long way to go before this case is done. And part of that is also an appeal. When the defense gave their press conference, they indicated that they would be filing notice of appeal, but it was going to take some time to file their full appeal. Yes, it will. It will take a substantial amount of time to get all of the transcripts from the trial. No, they can't use the YouTube videos on appeal. Yes, the lawyers can go back and watch them because it might be easier than reading through all of the transcripts. I would sure rather watch or at least listen than have to go and read all the transcripts. But they will be going back through all of the transcripts to bring their appeal and likely bring it on the issues of the 404 evidence, the other bad acts evidence, the financial crimes, the roadside incident, all the judicial rulings with regard to that. And then they are going to appeal um, the Doyle issue, which is whether or not the prosecution was improperly commenting on Alec Murdoch's post-arrest silence. It's an interesting question because the timing of it is strange. I think the silence that the prosecution was commenting on could be both. And I want to see how the defense breaks this down in their argument because Alec Murdoch made multiple statements to the police before he was arrested on the murders. And so the prosecution was arguing, this is the first time we're hearing this story today. Well, are they commenting on him not telling the story after he was arrested? Or are they commenting on the fact that in the three, four interviews with police before he was arrested on the financial crimes, he never said anything about it? 
And I think there's a fine line there that is going to be interesting to see parsed on appeal because it's not a readily apparent answer to me at this point yet. And I want to see how the defense narrows it down because Alec said in his own testimony, well, I was trying to tell you, but y'all wouldn't return my calls. Well, at what point was that? At what point was he trying to tell a different story to Creighton Waters? And so I have a lot of questions still there. And even when it was happening in court, I was like, wait, aren't they commenting on the fact that he gave all these interviews? Or are they commenting on his post-arrest silence? If you're taking anything away from this entire conversation about whether the prosecution improperly commented on your post-arrest silence, please take this away with you. This is the salient point, if I may distill it. If you do not talk, they cannot bring it up. That is the salient point. If Alec had not said anything and then gotten on the stand and testified, the prosecution's, prosecution would absolutely be barred from saying, well, this is the first time any of us are hearing this. That is improperly commenting on the defendant's silence. You can't do that. We never heard any of this from you before, did we? No, you can't say that. He has the right to remain silent. He waives that right to testify, but you can't comment on the fact that he didn't waive that right before he got on the stand to testify. However, when he gave a bunch of interviews before he was arrested on this case, is that what they were commenting on? And does that count? Hmm. And that's hard. So it's normally much more clear cut because the defendants don't give a million statements to police before they go to trial. This is not a clear cut situation to me. And the prosecution leaned in to, this is the first time you're telling us this story. They did it in their closing. This is a new story. So your new facts, the defendant's new facts to fit the evidence that the state has come up with. Every time the state has a piece of evidence, the defendant has a new fact. That's what they leaned into. And it'll be interesting to see how that gets broken down and I want to see it broken down with the transcripts too. Those are good areas of appeal. It's not throwing everything against the wall. They are legal issues where if there are violations there, it can absolutely warrant a new trial. But all it would warrant is a new trial. So I'm interested to see the juxtaposition between the statements that he gave, the fact that he wasn't arrested yet on the murders, when they're talking about this story being new, the fact that the defendant on the stand said, well, I tried to tell y'all and you wouldn't take my calls. I want to see how all that plays together. But these are the areas that are really important on appeal. When you get new trials, things like the judge allowing in too much prior bad acts are one of those things that appellate courts look at closely. Because it's one of those areas where you want to make sure a jury is not convicting somebody based on the prior bad acts. They're convicting them based on this case and these acts. And that is something they look closely at. And I think we will see leaned heavily into on appeal, not just 
oh, we can appeal everything. The judge, every error, the, every decision the judge made was wrong. I think they can narrow those down and I will be covering um, that appeal because I'm very interested to see how the defense argues that. And before we move on to what Randy Murdaugh had to say to the New York Times, there's a little, well, there's a lot going on since the trial because the internet's going to be the internet. I don't like seeing people trying to figure out who the jurors who haven't come forward yet are. If jurors choose not to come forward, let them choose not to come forward. It is their right to do so. Digging into the social media past to the jurors, once they do come forward and figure, like going all up into their lives, I understand why people want to do it, but it is going to get harder and harder to find juries of folks who are willing to take on difficult and high-profile cases and follow the law if they know their lives are going to get upended because they're watching it happen in real time. It worries me. But the jurors have a right to choose to speak, and the internet's going to be like, oh, this is your first and last name. Great. I also have seen reporting about media outlets following those involved in this case, including Buster Murdoch taking pictures of him in his home through the blinds on his windows. At some point, we have to reestablish some boundaries. I want to know what Buster Murdoch thinks, too. I want to know what Buster Murdoch has to say, too. I There's a lot of things I want to know, and there's a lot of questions that I have that weren't answered and that this trial never answered. They barely talked about Buster Murdoch's alibi at all. It's natural that people have questions, but where are the boundaries? His mother was murdered. His brother was murdered. His father was just convicted for their murder. His uncle had to testify. His aunt had to testify. He's been kicked out of law school. Yes, for his own actions, but he's been kicked out of law school. His last name is still Murdoch, and he's going to have to rebuild his life. So no matter what you think of Buster Murdoch, he is still going through it as a person. I want to know what he has to say too. But taking photos of him with long long lens cameras through the blinds that are closed isn't going to encourage him to talk to anyone. Send an email, extend the invitation. Would you like to talk? I imagine the answer is no. So at some point, where does it stop with following Maggie's family members, with Buster and with others? I think the only thing we can do is just not lean into the reporting. Take away the clicks and views. It's just, it's difficult and it worries me for not just the safety of people, but for their mental health and well-being. The internet can be so invasive anyway, but following people, he's the son of two people who were, or the son of one person who was brutally murdered and the brother of another one. So as sus as you may find him, he still deserves to be able to go home and shut the door and be safe. I know his dad didn't call the police to see if he was safe on June 6th. I get it. But he should be safe from harassment. I worry, how do you have a job? Could he ever be in an office where somebody could just walk in? Could he work in a public-facing way and be safe? 
safe, physically safe. It's a concern. And it just, it's just too far. Have we learned nothing from those that have been harmed physically, that have been chased and hunted until they were in car crashes, to those who it broke their mental health? At what point do we, as just humans, stop? I don't know. This, I think, is too far. Digging up all of the jurors, everything, at some point, it's too far. Look, the internet is not the jury consult service. If that's what you want to do, go do it. But does it need to be everywhere? There's so much that's public about this case for us to discuss and dissect and pull apart. And clearly, if people want to talk, they can. Randy Murdoch talked to the New York Times, and we're going to talk about that now. If people don't want to talk at some point, they deserve their privacy and shouldn't be hounded to the point where they can't live. He's going to have to work through the unimaginable. But at some point, we have to respect people's boundaries. I don't know how much more clear it gets than closed blinds and a shut door. Those are pretty clear signals that they don't want a telephoto lens pointed at to them inside their home. So let's not. I know it's not the law nerds. I know it's not the law nerds. And two things can be true at once. People can be sus and we can want to know what they know about things and boundaries. So with that, Randy Murdoch has decided to talk to the New York Times and we're going to talk. Look at that. Somebody has chosen to talk publicly and we're going to have a conversation about what they said. Let's do that. I have all the thoughts. I'm not done. Hold on. When I get frustrated in the Idaho College murders case, I am going to keep bringing up these examples because the judge in that case has locked it down so much through their non-dissemination order. And the reason the judge is locking it down, or part of the reason the judge is locking it down through their non-dissemination order, is to protect the process from shit like we're seeing now. You have a right in the U.S. to a public trial to confront your accusers, but also for the public to see that their judicial system is working the way it is supposed to by constitution. And when courts lock down so that people cannot see that the wheels of justice aren't being leaned on by political influence, by money, or by whatever it is, we need to be able to see the courtrooms. It's part of our process that it's public. And as long as we have real concern for people's safety, which there is, It is going to encourage judges like in Idaho to continue to try to lock back down the process for safety. So this is why we can't have nice things. We need to be able to have public and open proceedings where people can converse and talk and look at the process and ask questions, ask all of the questions, learn things about cases we wouldn't otherwise learn. But if it's done at the expense of the parties involved, 
with threats to the judge or to the lawyers or to the parties or to the witnesses, the judges are going to keep locking it down. And that doesn't help the process at all. And now I think I am done. I am getting off. I'm getting off of my soapbox. We need to be able to have the ability to disagree, to comment, to even disagree loudly, to argue, but not to have it tip over into real world scenarios where people are unsafe, are doxxed, are followed, where their identities that are kept sealed by the court are available in public and people are digging into their lives. There needs to be a respect for decorum and for boundaries. And we've lost so much of that. And I don't know how we start getting it back other than to say, yeah, it's fine to talk about it, but you can't go after people physically in the real world. Okay, I am done. Now I'm really done. Let's talk about Randy Murdoch. I don't know why the New York Times has picked this picture of Randy Murdoch, like all snake in the wood pile here, but he's standing by a pile of wood. Okay. Title of the article is Breaking Silence. Murdoch brother says, not knowing is the worst thing after Alec Murdoch's trial ended in a conviction for the murders of his wife and son. His older brother, Randy, is still trying to understand what happened that night. Um, this was brought to my attention by the law nerds as we started recording this episode. So thank you to everyone behind the scenes. If you're ever interested in doing that, Law Nerds Unite or join on YouTube and you can. But this is an article I will link. I went to it through Twitter where it was free to access and we're going to read through it. So for those of you on the audio, I'll let you know when I'm stopped reading and interjecting. The uh, kicker for me was the quote underneath the um, the photo that says, he knows more than he's saying, Randy Murdoch said of his brother who was convicted of murder last week. He's not telling the truth, in my opinion, about everything there. Remember, Randy Murdoch is not the brother that testified. That was John Marvin. Randy Murdoch is a lawyer that used to work with Alec at PMPED, who now works for the Parker Law Group still. Part of the lawyers that are paying back all of the money that Alec stole from clients out of their own pockets. This uh, was released and updated March 6th at 8.58 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Hampton, South Carolina. On the surface, the lives of Alec Murdaugh and his older brother Randy appeared to follow the same track. They were born two years apart. Both went to the University of South Carolina for college and law school. And then the two worked as partners at the family firm that had grown out of the century-old law practice founded by their great grandfather. That would be the PMPED. But even in college, it was clear they were different. Alec was briefly on the football team, briefly, a regular at college parties. Randy, a self-described quote unquote hometown boy, would go back home to Hampton every weekend to hunt and fish. In recent years, their officers were close enough that Randy could hear his brother's constant phone calls, but they rarely spent any time alone together. Well, isn't that interesting? Um, maybe not the closest close can be family as described on the stand by the defense. 
quote, it's not like there was some problem with our relationship necessarily, Randy Murdoch said. We just really weren't alike, so we didn't do stuff together. Then came Alec's arrest in July 2022 for the murder of his wife and son amid expanding allegations that he had stolen millions of dollars from clients in the law firm, which forced Randy to question whether he had ever truly known his brother. The question Creighton Waters wanted to ask everybody during this trial. A jury concluded last week after less than three hours of deliberation that Alec Murdoch was guilty of the murders. But for Randy, there has been no such certainty. He has spent nearly every day for the past 20 months trying to understand what might have happened on the night that Maggie and Paul Murdoch were fatally shot. In the first interview a family member has given since the trial, Randy Murdoch said he had no doubt that his brother was a serial liar and a thief. He said he also believed that Alec had not told the whole truth about what he knew about the killings. But asked directly whether he thought his brother carried out the murders, he said he still did not know. As a lawyer, he said he respects the jury's verdict, but he finds it impossible to picture Alec, a man he has known for decades, as a protective husband and father, pulling the trigger and inflicting the carnage that prosecutors described as a crime of cold calculation. He knows more than what he's saying, Randy said. He's not telling the truth, in my opinion, about everything there. Well, what does Randy think happened? For his entire family, he said, that has been among the most painful issues to confront. Quote, the not knowing, Randy says, is the worst thing there is. Randy's complicated view of the case, which he shared in a two-hour conversation on Sunday as he stacked wood. So they were chatting as he was stacking wood. He was literally stacking wood. Randy is literally standing by the stacks of wood that he... Okay. I guess you need to do something with your hands when you're talking. Two-hour conversation on Sunday as he stacked wood at his hunting property outside the town of Hampton. For the podcast audience that is not regularly on the YouTube, I apologize that I digress. It's it's a hashtag wood daddy stacks. It's a, it's a whole thing. Um, quote, after six weeks of trial, they came away more convinced that he did not do this and they are steadfastly in his camp and support him, Jim Griffin said at a news conference after Alec was sentenced to two life sentences. He said that about the family. He said the family really came away more convinced he did not do this. It seemed like he was talking of Buster quite a bit there. Alec Murdaugh's younger brother, John Marvin, and his surviving son, Buster, both testified for the defense in trial saying that he had seemed devastated after the murders. Randy Murdaugh emphasized that he was speaking for himself and not for any of his relatives, was not called to testify. He thinks it's possible no one put him on the stand because he did not align perfectly with either side. Probably not exactly accurate. In the weeks after the murders, the family mobilized to support Alec, grieving alongside him as he suggested that Paul must have been targeted over his involvement in the fatal boat crash in 2019, a theory that Alec continued to push during trial. About three months after the killings, Randy said the other law partners called Randy in to look at some financial records that appeared to show without a doubt that Alec had been stealing from their firm. Well, Alec admitted that on the stand. Randy and another partner confronted Alec the next morning in a tense conversation in which Alec admitted to the embezzlement and revealed a serious addiction to painkillers which Alec said prompted the thefts. Randy recalled that his brother seemed relieved to come clean. 
Alec promised that morning he would never lie to him again. It took about 24 hours for him to break that promise, Randy said. When he told Randy and the police that he had been shot on the side of the road by an unknown assailant. In fact, the police later said Alec had asked someone to kill him. When that fact emerged, Alec claimed it had been an attempted suicide, telling the police that he had hoped that if his death was ruled a murder, it would allow Buster to collect his life insurance. Over the next several months, as Alec was charged with stealing more than $8 million from law firm and clients, Randy said he came to see his brother as a deeply flawed man and a liar. They have not spoken in nearly a year. Randy said he began to think back on Alec's behavior in the first few weeks after the murders. At the time, it seemed like the police had few leads, and Randy began to call just about everyone he thought might help, asking if they had heard anything to suggest why Maggie and Paul might have been targeted. He passed on whatever he heard to police. Quote, I spent considerable time day after day for weeks on end calling people. But Alec, he said, never did. Maggie's sister testified at trial to the same effect, saying she found it odd that Alec never talked about who might have been the killer. He did tell her, she said, that he imagined whoever had done so had, quote, thought about it for a long time. It was one of the very interesting things in this trial, Maggie's sister's testimony about that. And then that, along with Alec's testimony, that whoever did this hated Paul. It was really interesting how Alec described what the murderer was thinking when he testified and describing what the murderer was thinking to Maggie's sister. Before the murders, Randy had been content to live a relatively simple life, making a good living at the family firm, raising two daughters and spending weekends hunting on an idyllic property just outside Hampton. But much of that life has been ripped apart as international attention has been trained on the low country region of South Carolina and his family. Now much of the Murdoch family is focused on supporting Buster 26, who has lost his entire immediate family. Randy is continuing at the law firm, including taking on a few of his brother's former clients. He feels the need to explain, quote, listen, I'm not him. I'm doing this the right way. Always have, he tells his clients. I don't beat around the bush. Unlike his siblings, John Marvin and Lynn, Randy did not attend every day of the six-week trial in Walterboro. On one day last month, as Alex sat at the defense table, his every move scrutinized by spectators and people around the country watching on TV and YouTube, Randy was standing before a judge in a nearly empty courtroom a short drive away. There in the Hampton County Courthouse, he was handling a settlement for a family that his brother had represented long before his embezzlement was exposed. In court, Randy ticked through each of the extra steps that he had taken to make sure the clients were not among those from whom Alec had stolen money. It was overkill, but I have to do that, Randy said. He said he never really expected the murder trial to offer him the definitive answer he has been looking for, but he had hoped that he might be able to stop his lawyer's mind from running through all the possible scenarios of what happened on that tragic night in June 2021. Quote, I hoped that after the trial, because there's nothing more that can be presented, that I'd stop thinking about this, he said. But so far, that has not been the case. And I'm truly not surprised by that. There's not going to be an answer of why the state's 
argument about why, their motive as to why, just leaves questions. And that is what Randy Murdoch is struggling with, not just the devastation that has been wrought, but the questions that won't be answered and maybe can't be answered. All that there is is a conviction. And that conviction isn't going to answer those questions for the family members, unfortunately. But as we close this episode, I don't think Randy Murdaugh is the only one left with questions. There's a jury verdict here that convicts Alec of killing his wife and son. We've seen six weeks of trial, but there are still questions. And the thing that's left in a lot of these cases, especially the really horrific ones, is a lack of understanding why. And I don't think any of us can answer that question in this case. And what we're seeing from the jurors who are choosing to speak to media is they weren't focused so much on why. They were focused on the fact that they believed that he did it. I don't know if that's what we're going to focus on in the weeks to come after this trial. There sure will be a lot more discussion as we get into the appeal. And there's been a lot of questions from you, the incredible Lawnards, and I'm going to answer a few of those now from our amazing members. So thank you to everyone that submitted questions. I reviewed the ones that I had before I started the episode as I um, prepped for the episode to see what topics I wanted to cover in this episode. And I'm going to answer a few more now. There were a number of questions from our members community about what happens to the next crimes, given that Alec freely admitted to all the thefts on the stand. And it really depends on whether the Attorney General Creighton Waters is going to pack up all of those other charges and have Alec plead to some of them or all of them and what sentencing would be. The prosecution has to keep in mind that if a new trial is ordered on the murders, that the conviction can be overdone, the sentences can be overturned. So whatever they do on the financial crimes, they need or will want to make sure that it ensures that he stays in custody the rest of his life. That is what they are going to seek. He is facing life on all of those financial crimes as an operation of law in South Carolina. It's why I thought they should have gone ahead with those first and waited for more information to charge the murder. They didn't. Um, but we'll see. I don't know if those will plea. I don't know if there's a point of taking those to trial, but the state has to offer a deal and the defense has to choose to take it. And we saw that there was no deal offered in the murder case based on the statements at the press conferences made by the defense team. A number of questions about the judge's comments at sentencing. And it's interesting because we know this judge, Judge Newman, uh, whose demeanor I quite liked, we are going to see presiding over all of the financial crimes. And the shit's kind of out of the horse on those financial crimes. Judge Newman has heard quite a lot of evidence about them. But he also makes sure to say, I will rule on things as they come before me. It's not unusual for Judge Newman or any judge to make a statement at sentencing. I've, in fact, never seen a sentencing where a judge doesn't make 
some kind of a statement about their view of the evidence, their view of the defendant in a way, and what they're pronouncing sentencing on. We saw it very thoroughly in a few of the cases that I have covered here, including the Daryl Brooks case in Waukesha. You see the judge talk about the case, talk about the evidence, talk about their view of the evidence as they are sentencing the defendant. And I didn't find that unusual here. I thought it was interesting that the judge talked about whether or not Maggie and Paul would haunt Alec, whether he would see them when he had to sleep. It was a very interesting statement. And I think he was a little disappointed that the defendant didn't say more for himself. And he said, but I understand there will be appeals and what have you. Um, But he sure did have a lot to say about the case. Do I think that was inappropriate in any way? No, I think we, um, we learned a lot about how the judge viewed this evidence. And it seems that he viewed it the same way that the jury did. He agreed with the verdict in this case and agreed that the sentence that was handed down should be a heavy one. Music to My Soul over on YouTube asked, why would Alec Murdoch and the defense bother spending the resources and effort on an appeal when he's facing life on the financial crimes, most of which he's admitted to committing anyway, to clear his name of the murder charges and to also hold the state and the judge to account if wrong rulings were made, if wrong evidence was let in, and to make sure that the system works. If wrong rulings are made, they need to be righted. And one of the only ways to do that is by appeal. So I understand why they will appeal this, even though it might, in practicality, not change a lot. It might change things like status on where he can be housed in prison based on the types of crimes he's convicted of and things like that. But clearing his name on appeal um, is something they're going to very much want to do. And we heard how important that was to Alec with regard to Paul's name after the boat case, because in testimony from Maggie's sister, she talked a lot about um, that was Alec's main focus, not finding the murderers, but clearing Paul's name. So I'm sure that's still important to Alec. Uh, Genevieve Smith over on YouTube asked, will there be any more forensic accounting? I'm curious to where the money went. We saw some forensic accounting and we saw the forensic accountant for the grand jury. How far they were able to trace the money is more than we were going to hear in this trial. But I am very interested as to how much they know and when and if that information will become public because they know more than we do still with regard to the financial crimes. But yes, where is the money and are they going to be able to trace any of it and bring it back to pay the debts owed from the money stolen? And Finally, from Honk Banana No on YouTube, only question I still have, is Bubba a good boy or the goodest boy? And that is a question I am going to leave with all of you. We saw Metters, and he scared the crap out of me during this line of arguing as I was trying to take notes, but we saw Metters argue that really, if it weren't for Bubba, would this case have ever been brought And I think Metters on this is exactly right. If Bubba hadn't had a chicken in his mouth at the exact same time that Paul was trying to take a video of Cash's tail for his friend Rogan Gibson, we would have never heard Alec Murdoch on that video because only to talk about Bubba having a chicken in his mouth 
Did we hear Alec Murdoch say anything on that video to prove he was up at the kennels minutes before when the state says that Paul and Maggie were killed? So really, if it weren't for the dogs in this case, I don't know if these murders would have ever been solved and if they ever would have been brought to trial. So you in the chat and you in the in the comment section down below and on social media, let me know your vote. Is it Bubba a good boy or is Bubba the goodest boy? And with that, law nerds, it is time to go. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being a law nerd. Thank you for hanging with me through this trial and all the things that will come next. And thank you for getting back to the pop culture things with me. We need some lighter cases for a little bit. Um, and unfortunately, one of the other cases we are covering is also quite heavy and there's a lot going on in it. So yes, we will be back in Idaho soon. But for now, may your Wi-Fi be strong. May your toilet paper be plentiful. May your paw nerd be the goodest paw nerd to ever paw nerd. May your family be well, and may the odds be ever in your favor. I will see you in the next one. You can find more Law Nerd goodness in our private Law Nerd community over at lawnerdsunite.com. And if you want to stay up to date with everything I'm covering, you can follow me on social media at The Emily D. Baker. I stream on YouTube on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I recap those streams for those of you a little pressed for time over on the QuickBits podcast and QuickBits YouTube channel. Thanks for being a Lawnerd.